told the stories before, but during my high school years, uh, I had the privilege of living on the eastern shores of Lake Michigan for most of high school. I was a dock hand at North Shore Marina. Now, North Shore Marina was the last marina on the Grand River before you reached Lake Michigan, and so a lot of huge yachts and huge boats, and uh, it was a ton of fun. I was the envy of all uh, my high school classmates because I got to work there. I got to work on the docks during the summer in the sun. We got to uh, gas the boats. We, uh, they gave the keys to a 17-year-old kid to this big forklift, and we used this forklift that could reach three or four stories high and pick up these million-dollar boats and uh, down in the water for people to use uh, during the day. We, uh, I don't know why they trusted us with that, but we did that. Um, we had a ton of fun. We got to take care of the swimming pool in the summer, so that gave us free access uh, to the swimming pool. Uh, but one of the jobs uh, that was not so fun was when we had to clean boat bottoms. It was a filthy job. As you can imagine, boats that were left in the water all year long would be uh, covered with algae, as thick as carpet, and so you'd have to pull those boat, boats out uh, at the end of the year, and you would have to power wash all that sludge off the bottom of the boats. Uh, literally, as you cleaned the bottom of these boats, they could go five to ten knots faster once they had a clean boat bottom, and then we would paint them with special paint. But before we painted them, we had to clean them with muriatic acid, and so we would scrub out there. And so you can imagine 17-year-old uh, guys, we didn't need any uh, protection, we didn't need any uh, eye gear, uh, we were tough, we were young, we were dumb. And one of the moments, uh, dumb moments that I had was I remember kneeling down beneath the boat, looking up at the keel to make sure that it was clean, and I can remember this in like it was slow motion, a drop of what I thought was water dropped down off that keel right into my left eye except that it wasn't water. It was muriatic acid. And I felt immediately like I had a thousand needles shoved into my eyeball. It was terrible. There was an old rusty pocket knife that we kept by the gas pumps. And I remember thinking that if I could just grab that knife, it had to be less painful. The, the thought of just plucking my eyeball out couldn't hurt as badly as it hurt with that acid in my eyes. And so uh, another dumb move, but maybe it saved me. Uh, I took a hose, a high-pressure water hose, and squirted the inside of my eyeball out. And I don't remember how I got home that day. I don't remember if I had to go to the doctor. I do remember that I didn't have any lasting damage. But one thing that I remember vividly more than anything else is that I could not bear to look at the light for the next several days. A few days later, I remember going to my friend's house, and we were watching movies. Our youth group was watching movies in the basement that evening, and in the dark room with the brightness of the television, I couldn't even look at the television. All I could think to do was to go outside in the pitch, dark, pitch black and the darkness, wrap my head in a t-shirt, and hold my head because I couldn't bear the thought. It was too painful to look at the light. Well, this morning, we're going to continue in a series called Hope. And I want to talk about this type of pain. Now, not necessarily in terms of, of physical pain like I just described, but maybe in terms of, of painful circumstances where the only thing you can think to do is to keep your head in the darkest place possible. Because lifting your head and looking towards the light is simply too painful. It hurts too badly. It's really where we've been in this entire series so far. We've been talking about uh, the light of Jesus that pierces, that, that exposes uh, what we've been trying to manage in the dark. And so today we want to address the subject of a heart that's been broken by pain, uh, a variety of different pains, but a heart that's been broken by pain in a message titled, uh, Hope for a Grieving Heart. 
You know, one of the things that I've discovered uh, as I get older, I know I don't look older to many of you. I'm up here in the world's coolest outfit. I got my uh, Air Jordans on today, and uh, you think that I'm young. In reality, I have uh, lived nearly 50 years on this earth. And in my time on this earth, I have discovered one of the things is that there is a variety of ways that people are hurting. There is a variety of sorrows that are in your life. There is a variety of ways that we can have our hearts broken. Compiled a list recently. Listen to this list. See if you can, uh, if any of these sorrows have touched your life. Uh, the sorrow, the pain of loneliness. I just prayed this morning with somebody uh, who uh, had a painful and ailing body. Perhaps you've had an unfair supervisor at work, made your life miserable, brought pain and agony on you, uh, perhaps job loss. Maybe you've been a victim of, of abuse, of physical abuse, maybe even sexual abuse. Perhaps there's an ongoing conflict in your marriage and that weighs heavily on you, it, it hurts your heart. Perhaps you have battled infertility in your marriage. Perhaps a disease has touched your family, the disease of cancer, a horrendous disease. Uh, just this week, another uh, friend's uh, parent passed away that was suffering from memory loss, the horrible disease of memory loss. Perhaps that has touched your life. Maybe you've experienced a failed adoption or wayward children. Maybe your testimony is that of an adulterous spouse, uh, perhaps a, a terminally ill child, or worse yet, having lost a child. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Maybe you're dealing with some, psych, some sort of uh, sexual temptation that is too much to bear, perhaps a same-sex attraction that you're ashamed of, perhaps an addiction in your life that has brought uh, all kinds of pain into your heart. You know, every single one of these items on this list has someone's name beside it. Someone over the course of my time in ministry here at Liberty Heights Church, every single thing on this list has a face attached to it. And here's what I want you to see this morning. That because this list is so varied, because God has wired all of us so differently... The fact of the matter is that everyone's grief journey is going to be different. I couldn't walk through your specific grief journey this morning. It may be unique simply to you. But here's one thing that we do have in common. For those of us that profess Jesus Christ this morning, we have a Savior that has promised to never leave us. Men? And so this morning I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 17. Because I'm going to look at a prayer this morning that has been birthed out of deep pain. Many commentators believe that this prayer was actually written by David before he was King David as a result of the pain of literally running for his life from the wicked King Saul. Now, we've told this story so many times, we've told it with white gloves and children's church and a cool little coloring page, and we lose reality or lose touch with the reality that he was running for his life, he was scared, he was panicked, his world was crashing in on him, he didn't understand this. That God could have anointed him to be the next king, and yet the king uh, on the throne currently wanted him dead. And so pick up with me in Psalm chapter 17 as I uh, read these 15 verses together. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. You'll find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. 
With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, by your own testimony, Lord, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They, they have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. My enemy is like the uh, lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with, with, with treasure. They're satisfied with their children. They leave their abundance to their infants. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied by your likeness. The Lord honored the reading of his word this morning. Psalm chapter 17 is what we would call a prayer of lament. These prayers of lament are all throughout the book of Psalms. These are uh, songs or poems or cries that would give voice to the strong emotion uh, that the psalmist was feeling. These prayers of lament giving voice to the pain. But they were more than that. They were connecting uh, pain with a promise. One of the best definitions of a prayer of lament is this. Uh, it is a prayer in pain that leads to hope. Over a third of the chapters of Psalms are prayers of lament, these desperate cries, these aching, grieving hearts, but with the purpose of leading them to hope. A few years back, you may remember this, we uh, walked through a study of Romans chapter 8 together. We spent the entire summer, two summers ago, uh, focusing entirely on that one chapter, all 38 or 39 verses within that chapter. And you remember, may remember there's this beautiful verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, and it says that we can become so weak and so weary that we get to this place where we can't even pray coherently. The Apostle Paul reminds us that the Holy Spirit in those moments will come and pray on our behalf, that literally he will find the right words and deliver them to the Father on our behalf. But it struck me recently that in my own life, oftentimes before I even get to that place where I've I might have lost for words. Before I even get to my prayers where I'm talking incoherently, honestly, most of us just stop praying. And oftentimes we find ourselves with this grieving heart and our head hurts too bad to lift it and look towards the light. And so we shrink back into the shadows. We isolate ourselves from other believers. And we distance ourselves from the, the promise of God. And so the reason that we've chosen to look at this passage today in Psalm chapter 17 is because David models for us what it looks like to pray effectively while we're under pain. I can't describe what pain you're experiencing this morning. This morning, maybe it was on the list of things that we talked about. Maybe it's completely unique, something only you are experiencing. I don't know what that is. 
But I can help you through Psalm 17 learn how to pray under pain. The first thing that we see immediately there in verse 1 is that we are to cry out. That's the first part of, of praying under pain is to cry out. Verse 1 says, Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Over and over and over. So many psalms of lament or prayers of lament start out just like this. Let me read a few for you. Psalm 130 starts out, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Psalm 77 is another uh, very familiar lament. I I cry aloud to God and he will hear me. Psalm 61 is one of my favorites. If I've ever prayed with you down at these steps following a service, I may have prayed this prayer on your behalf. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I cry out to you because my heart is faint. Over and over and over we hear the psalmist cry out. Now if you're a parent, uh, then you know that there are different types of cries that our little children, especially our babies, uh, can emit. These different cries, we, we learn them over time. They're as distinct to us as their own voice. Right? There's the cry that if you're a dad, you try to ignore as you tiptoe out of the room and shut the door behind you. I hope your wife doesn't hear it because tonight's the night that you're going to teach them to cry it out, right? Nobody? Yeah, whatever. Then there's the type of cry, that the fussy cry. It says that I have a dirty diaper. It says that I am hungry. And so we know those cries. They're different than the other types of cries. And so we know exactly what they need. Sometimes there's a cry for help and we don't know what it means. And so we have a checklist that we walk through, right? You know, is, it, is their diaper too tight? Is something pinching them? Are they too hot? Are they too cold? Uh, we have this list that we walk through and we usually, uh, moms can usually figure that out. But then there is the cry. Sometimes it comes, it often comes when they're all alone, when you're not in their presence, and it is a scream, it is a yell that says, come running, I need you right now. So when uh, our girls were younger, we had a crib. We bought this crib at a garage sale. I know you're not supposed to do that anymore. I guess there's recalls on cribs, and it's dangerous to use cribs. We were proud of this crib. It had a matching dresser and a changing table, and it had these cool spindles on it. And um, our daughter, Taylor, when she was a baby, she, she was a, such a pleasant little thing. And she would uh, wake us up in the morning, not by crying, not by screaming, not by hollering. She would just be squeaking that little spindle. And so we would look, and we would know she was awake, and we would go in and, and, and get her up for the day. But one time, I vividly remember this. In the middle of the night, there was that cry for help, and it said, Dad, I need you now. And I burst into that room, and there in the darkness, she had somehow wedged her leg completely through that spindle and then back again through another spindle. And the more she fought it, the more she battled it. It was cutting the circulation off in her little foot, and she was screaming she needed her dad. Now, we didn't learn our lesson. Rachel also slept in that crib. (laughs) Made them tough. And we sold it at a garage sale eventually, and somebody else probably went through that same problem. But there was a desperate cry. That's the word picture here. That cry was desperate. It was painful. That's the language that's used in the uh, original Hebrew language. That same word picture is not just used here in Psalms. It's used all throughout Scripture. 
Exodus chapter 2 says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help, this shrill cry, this wail for help. Jonah chapter 2. Uh, Jonah says, he's looking back in verse 2 about his time in the belly of that great fish. And he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the, the belly of Sheol, I cried. He says, it felt like I was in hell, and you heard my voice. We see that same word picture in, in a different language in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 14, it says, Peter cried out. He said, Lord, save me. We could go on and on and on this morning with examples of how desperate prayers have invited God to show up. There's examples all throughout Scripture where God sovereignly allows difficult circumstances into somebody's life, and he does not respond until there is a crying out that takes place. This is the foundational piece of praying unto We absolutely have to understand this as the first aspect of of a prayer of lament is simply to cry out. Sometimes God chooses sovereignly not to remove the pain from our lives when we cry out. And sometimes he does that to teach us. He did the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that his grace is sufficient. But other times the reason that he hasn't removed the pain is because we have yet to cry out. We have yet to come to this place of desperation in our prayers where we cry out like a child whose foot is caught in the crib. And so turning your head to face the light and crying out the foundational piece of praying under pain. Let's quickly build on that foundation. There's a few more principles I want to look at. The second principle of effectively praying under pain is to make sure that you aren't the source of that pain. Make sure you're not the source of that pain. Listen, the hardest job of being a pastor is walking uh, with someone through their grief. Now listen, uh, being in ministry is a wonderful job. It's the best job in the world. We get to be, uh, have a front row seat to lives that are being changed by the gospel. Just this week as I was uh, actually studying for this message, my door was shut. That usually means don't come in. And, and somebody burst into my office. It was my wife with tears in her eyes. She said, you're not going to believe it. I just led uh, somebody to the Lord. One of our students just accepted Christ, and there we celebrated in the moment. We have these moments all the time on staff. Every week we're celebrating uh, people's lives as they are radically transformed by the gospel. But the flip side of being in ministry is walking with people when they're hurting, when they're grieving, when they have broken hearts. But let me tell you this morning, the worst type of pain to witness is the type of pain that sometimes people bring on themselves. You know, sometimes the, the pain that we feel is the response to guilt that weighs heavy. Sometimes uh, it's the bitterness that we've had trouble freeing ourselves from. But sometimes our pain is caused by the darkness that lurks in the depths of our own heart. In other words, we're responsible for our pain. We are to blame. And so scholars who have studied the nuances of the original language here in Psalm 17 have indicated that David is using language... Uh, language similar to that of a defense attorney, that he, he's pleading his case in the court of law. In fact, listen to David plead his case in verses 3, 4, and 5. He says, you've tried my heart, you've visited me by night, you've tested me, you'll find nothing. 
I have purpose in my mouth that I will not transgress with regard to the works of man by the word, by your own testimony, God. I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your I've not, I've not left your path. My feet have not slipped. And in those verses, David reveals two sources of pain uh, that can come into our lives at our own hand. In verse 3, he speaks first of impure motives. You've tried my heart, you've visited me by night, you've tested me, you'll find nothing. You remember the stories from children's church of King Saul chasing after, after David, and on two separate occasions... David was alone with Saul. Saul didn't even know that he had the opportunity to preemptively take Saul's life. Like this was the, the, the best case for self-defense that's ever existed. Like he's trying to kill me. I killed him first. He, he could have justified it. And yet he says, I, I, I didn't have impure uh, thoughts here. I didn't have impure motives. I didn't try to kill him. I decided to let you be the avenger. Second source of pain that David alludes to in his prayer is unwise actions. He says, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. He declares that he has kept himself uh, free from those who are evil. He wasn't drawn into this trap of retaliating and doing something that was evil. You guys know I love telling stories about officiating football. And a couple Friday nights ago, we had a couple teams, and man, it was a uh, it was hot on that field. I mean, it, t- uh, tempers were flying before the game, the week leading up to the game. Uh, there were some things that were traded back and forth on social media. And actually, when I heard them, it, it was heinous. Like some of these things, they, they had taken it, uh, some of these kids had taken it to another level. It was absolutely uh, horrible what they had said. In fact, administrators had to get involved. I, I think maybe even the authorities had to get involved. But by the time we got to this game, I'm telling you, uh, testosterone was flying all over that field that night. And I threw more flags, uh, more penalty flags on that Friday night than I've thrown this entire year put together. And almost in every single situation, you know how it works, right? We have five guys trying to watch 22 players. And so what do we catch? We catch the guy that's retaliating. It's hard to see uh, the first blow, it's hard to see the first shot. And so in every single one of these instances, the young man jumped up and said, I was just defending the honor of my teammate who was wronged. I- I'm just responding to something that they did first. In other words, what they were saying was that our motives were pure, even if my subsequent action was dumb and it cost my team. But David is asking God to hear his prayer Because he's not guilty of either one of these things. He's not guilty of impure motives. He's not guilty of unwise actions. So let me tell you why this is crucial to search your own hearts when you're in pain. Because if uh, impure motives are the source of our pain, then God will not incline his ear to hear us because our cause is not just like David's was here in verse 1. And just as I illustrated, our motives can be pure, but our response can still be unwise, resulting in painful consequences. We've said this before. I'll say it again. When Jesus came and died for our sins, he died to take away the penalty of our sins, but it does not always remove the consequences of our sins. And sometimes there are painful consequences that we have to bear, 
And if you don't recognize any of these things in your life before you cry out, then the outcome oftentimes is bitterness. Because it's really easy to say, I cried out, I asked God to take away the pain, I asked God uh, to involve himself in this situation, and he wasn't listening. Or worse yet, God didn't even care. And so make sure that you are not the source of your prolonged pain with either impure motives or unwise actions. So we cry out. We do so with the confidence that our pain is not from our own undoing. And then we affirm the character of God. We affirm the character of God. So we understand crying out, check, that makes sense. We understand doing a spirit-led inventory in our own lives, done that, check. But what do we cry out? David models for us that we're to affirm the character of God. And you say, great, what does that mean? Now, I don't know what that means. And so what that simply means is that in the midst of the storm, David reminds God who God is in verses 6 and 7. Now, is there a chance that God forgot who he is? Of course not. God remembers who he is. This isn't for God's benefit. This is for our benefit. This, this is for us. It's so easy for us to forget who God is. Because if you're like me, when my heart is aching, when I am grieving, it's really easy to doubt all of the promises of God. And so we pray those back to him. We affirm his character. There are literally hundreds of attributes of God. Uh, I, I can give you a list. I have a get list on my computer. Our, our life group right now is praying through the Navigator's list of attributes of God. There's 30 of them every day. We walk through a different one associated with that particular day of the month. We pray back the attributes of God to him. You can Google what are the attributes, what are the names of God. You can include that in your daily uh, quiet time. And here are the two attributes of God that David chooses to highlight in this particular lament. Look at verse 6. He says, I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. See, he is willing. David knew that if he comes with a clean heart, that God is willing to hear his cry. This speaks of God's love and his mercy and his kindness towards us. Remember, it was his kindness that drew you to repentance in the first place. And so we remind God that he is willing. And when we do this, we are declaring these things to be true regardless of how God chooses to act. We don't wait for him to take away our pain to declare that God is good. We say God is good on the front side regardless of how he chooses to act because God is good not because of what he does for us, but because of his very nature, which is goodness. Verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Why did David seek refuge at God's right hand? Because he is able. Why did he go running to God? He didn't go running to God because he hoped that God would save him. He didn't go running to God because he hoped that God would intervene in his life. He went to God because he knew that God was able. 
And so David was affirming the fact that the, uh, the wind listens and obeys God's voice even as the waves are crashing down on David. That's a metaphor that he often used. He talked about the troubles of this world were like breakers washing over top of him. And yet in the midst of all of that, even in the times when he felt like he was drowning, he was affirming the character of God. Church, when we affirm the character of God, it protects us from doubting in the dark what God has already revealed to be true in the light. And what he revealed in the light is that he is willing and that he is able. And so if there are, uh, you're at a loss of any of the other attributes to pray, you can pray these two things. We know them to be true. And then this, the last key, effectively praying under pain, is this, and we've taught this often. It's been a theme, a recurring theme over and over and over. Quit trying to be strong. Look quickly with me at verse 8. David says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. This term, under your wings, is a phrase that is used three different times in, in Psalms. Reminds us of the great Psalm 91. Uh, I rest in the shadow of the Almighty, and under your wings I will find refuge. Now, does God have a physical body? Does he, is he an angel with wings? No, not at all. But it gives a, a word picture of a, of, a mother, uh, of a mother bird or a hen that is covering her chicks with her wings and protecting these baby birds from the elements and from, from predators. Now, typically, when we talk about hiding, hide somewhere, go hide, that's what cowards do, right? But look who's talking here. David's no coward. Do you remember the story about the bear? You remember the story about the lion that he killed with his bare hands? Do you guys remember Goliath? David's not a coward. Rather, he is a young man that recognizes in the midst of his own despair that his greatest strength is not his own ability to buckle down and weather the storm, but rather his strength comes from God who will confront the enemy on his behalf, verse 13, and deliver David's soul by his own hand, verse 14. In church, there are some situations, there are some seasons where you can grit your teeth as hard as you want, but you will never find shelter from the storm until you are humble enough to place yourself under his protective wing and ask him to fight on your behalf. You know, we're raised in a culture that is uh, a Western culture that says, I can do anything I want to do. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I have no idea what that means, except that it refers to a self-made man that says, I have figured this all out. And so all of culture is telling, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And that's the exactly opposite the message that the Bible says that you can't do it. You'll never be able to do it. You can grit your teeth, you can try as hard as you want, and in the end, you are going to fail until you humble yourselves and place yourself under his protection and ask him to fight on your behalf. There's this beautiful verse in Psalm 46.1. I often share this anytime I participate in a funeral, and it says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present trouble, a very present help in trouble. And notice it doesn't say that when we cry out that he sends us help. It says that he is our help. And friends, when we let him be our refuge and our strength, instead of gritting our teeth 
and battling through the pain on our own, when we do that, then he's the one that gets all the glory. And what we get is a testimony where we can walk away and talk about how our weaknesses magnified his strength. We can talk about what he has accomplished in our life in spite of our weaknesses. That's our testimony. Well, David puts a nice little bow on this entire passage this morning. Look with me at verse 15. He says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. What would David have known about the face of God? Undoubtedly, he had probably heard the stories, maybe from his mother, his grandmother, uh, the stories that Moses had told. Moses was on the Mount Rushmore of Jewish leaders, and so uh, I'm sure they uh, studied all of his work and his writings, the law, and they would have undoubtedly been familiar with Exodus chapter 23 and chapter 24, where Moses, in his encounter with God on the mountaintop, said, God, I want to see your face. I want to see who I'm talking to. Remember what God said? He said, no one can look upon my face and live. That my glory is too overwhelming for you. It will literally kill you. But Moses persisted. And so God said, okay, hide here in the cleft of this rock. And as my glory passes you by, I'll let you look backwards at the, at the veil, at the train of my glory. And you can see that. And it says when Moses came down, off the mountaintop that his face glowed so brightly from the encounter that he had to wear a veil over his face so that the people around him wouldn't be blinded. And here in the midst of David's darkness, when he's all alone in the middle of the dark, he longed for the light of God's face. And what Psalm 17 gives testimony to the fact that crying out to God is how we connect our pain with the promise of hope that comes from the light of this world that we now know as Jesus Christ. The late Tim Keller tells the story of an Old Testament seminary professor that was trying to help him understand the book of Job. Undoubtedly, many of you are familiar with the book of Job. If you're not familiar with the story, it's a story of a man in the, in the Bible. And he lost everything. He lost everything of value. He lost his wealth. He lost his health, he lost his family, his possessions, he lost everything. And the only thing that he was left with was two friends to commiserate with and a wife who told him to curse God and die. And the professor asked Keller this, he said, do you notice how Job, after Job says all of these terrible prayers, after he says all of these terrible things to God, but at the very end, God says, Job has honored me. And God actually turns to Job's friends and he says, listen, you ought to get Job to pray on your behalf because Job has honored me and you have not. The professor continued, why in the world after all those terrible prayers would God say, Job honored me? The answer is that they were prayers. You see, Job was being angry and he was complaining, but he was being angry and he was complaining to God. He never walked away from God. He said, God, I don't understand what's going on, and I'm angry at you, but he never turned away. He stayed with God even when he was getting nothing out of it, and for a season, he was getting nothing out of his prayers. But he stayed with God, and in the end, that meant Satan was defeated. 
And even though Job was not necessarily praying in any way the way that we have learned to pray today, he was still praying. He said, darkness is my closest friend, but he was saying it to God, which in the end means that Satan was defeated. And church, what that means is when you go through darkness, when you feel that God's not there, but you hold on anyway, and you say, you know what, God? You're God, and I'm not. And I'm going to trust your character even when I can't see your hand. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for just the next few minutes. If you're able to stay in the room as we walk through this, I think this might be the most important part of the message today as we walk through and maybe have an opportunity here now, maybe for the first time for some of you, to cry out. I know your stories. I know your pain. I have prayed with you through many of these things that you're walking through. I know the heartache that you're carrying. And this morning as a church, we want to come around you who are hurting. I'm going to ask you to do something here in a minute. We've only done this a few times in many, many years. And it's going to be the bravest thing that you're going to do today. But I'm going to ask you, if you're walking through heartache, if your heart is broken, if it's in pieces on the ground and you don't know how to put it back together, I'm going to ask in just a moment if you would stand up. I'm going to ask that you would have the courage To stand up, I'm going to ask you to have the courage to let people come around you and to pray over you this morning. One of the things we know about grief is that it's just impossible to walk through it alone effectively. And so this morning, would you allow the brothers and sisters that you go to church with each and every week, would you allow them to come around you in a non-threatening and, a, and in an appropriate way to pray over you this morning. I just have a sense that so many of you are hurting. We don't want to miss this opportunity to be the body of Christ to you today. So if that's you, would you just stand up right now? If you're carrying something in this room that nobody else maybe knows about, would you stand up and let us pray for you right now? Several are standing. You're not alone. Just give you another opportunity. If you are carrying a burden today, would you let us pray for you? Would you just let us know by standing up? You don't have to talk. You don't have to tell your story. Just stand and let us pray for you today. Church, I'm going to ask you, for those of you that aren't standing, to just look quietly around you. If there's someone near you, would you stand right now and gather around that person? There's hundreds of us in the room this morning, just a few that are standing. 
Friends, is this, this is our way of saying that you're not in this alone. This brokenness that, you're, that you feel right now, it's real and it hurts. And we care. And we want to cry out for you this morning. So friends, as you are gathered around those that are hurting and aching, would you pray for them in the quietness of your own heart while I pray these psalms over them? Our Father, hear our cries and listen to our prayer. God, from the ends of the earth, we call to you. We call as our hearts grow faint. Lead us to the rock that is higher than us. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way and lead us in the way of everlasting life. For you are good, and your mercy endures forever. Lord, this morning we cling to the promise that you are working all things for our good and your glory. We find peace in the knowledge that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. I pray that you will lift this burden of pain from our brothers and sisters this morning. I pray in the, in, in the days ahead, in the moments ahead, that you will minister to them through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the tangible work of people, maybe even in this room, that you'll minister to them and let them know and let them be reminded that you are their strength. And Father, today we boast all the more gladly in our weaknesses so that Christ's power will rest on us. May we ever be reminded that your grace is sufficient. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And the church said, amen.